Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics and sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hello everyone, thank you for joining and welcome to the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is JB Kalin, I am a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan, and it is my pleasure to introduce our panel, Creating a Sports Legacy. Our distinguished panelists today are Casey Wasserman, Chairman CEO of Wasserman, Jonathan Kraft, President of the Kraft Group, and Josh Harris, owner, Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment. Our panel will be moderated today by Jackie McMullen, senior writer, ESPN. The panel will run for about 45 minutes, after which we'll have some time for Q&A. If you'd like to submit a question, please do, do so via Twitter using the hashtag SportsLegacy. <laughs> and with that, I'll hand it over to Jackie. Thank you. So we have a very distinguished panel today with many, many years of deep business experience. So I think I want to start there. How your experience in business translates into the, the realm of sports. We'll start with you, Josh. Great. So, um, you know, obviously uh, Apollo, which is, um, you know, the com another company that I founded, which is my day job, as I call it, um, uh, distinct from uh, the fun I have with uh, the Sixers and the Devils and Crystal Palace. Uh, we own probably over 50 companies. And so I'd say there, uh, there's a lot of similarities and a few differences. I think the similarities really relate to... Um, you know, you, if you buy a great franchise uh, and you have great people and you attract the best people, you generally win. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think in business and sports, you know, you try to create, uh, you know, buy a franchise asset, a good city, a good club, uh, attract great people to it, and then, you know, kind of align on strategy and get out of their way and let them do it and then make sure that it's heading in the right direction. I think that's very similar to business. I think on the uh, different side, uh, there, there are a couple of differences. One is, um, <clears throat> you know, no one cares. We own this company, Lyondell Chemical. It was a $50 billion chemical company, but no one, no one, the public doesn't really care what the price of polypropylene is. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the six... <laughs> Probably should. Yeah. But the Sixers starting lineup, uh, you know, you just get a, you know, everyone has an opinion. Uh, it matters to the city. It matters to the fans. It's written about. So the press element of sports is really significant. It's something that stirs the public consciousness. And then the other thing is you're dealing with, um, you know, talent, with people that in their own right are, uh, have millions of followers on social media. Uh, they're stars. They're the best in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, at what they do, and so there's a unique element of, of working with those people and motivating them and keeping them, you know, excited about building something with you. And so those would be, at least from my point of view, the similarities and the differences of uh, the different businesses. So Jonathan, you're, you and your dad and your family were entrenched in this community in, in a business sense for many, many years before you bought the, pa the Patriots. And I think at one point there was discussion of 
trying to buy the Red Sox, perhaps. So I wonder about growing up in a community here and the emotions of your own attachment to a sports franchise and then balancing that with just business, making it a profitable business. Well, we, we started going, um, I've said this story publicly before, so maybe people have heard it, but when I was seven, my first clear memory of childhood was my father uh, coming home and opening his brief, briefcase for me. It was 1971 and the old Schaefer Stadium was opening that year and he had season tickets to the Patriot games. And since then, um, we didn't buy the team till 94, but I might have missed 10 games in Foxborough since 1971. We were just passionate fans. And obviously the on-field product is what people get obsessed about. And there's nothing in traditional business that pre prepares you for that. But I will say that from our perspective, our, our foundation businesses at the Kraft Group are commodity capital intensive manufacturing businesses, paper and packaging. And I think we learned a tremendous amount. I know I did. I brought over from those businesses a tremendous amount when we bought the Patriots. They don't help you put a winning team on the field, but the first thing it does is when you're selling a commodity, you learn that the only way to really differentiate yourself is to be highly, highly focused on customer service. Sports in the mid-90s wasn't focused on customer service. It was a very still, it was antiquated in that respect. And the Patriots, when we bought them, were fourth in the town. And out of the four teams, we said, we're gonna love up anybody that interacts with us in any way possible, the way we do in our packaging business. And I think that helped us make a connection as well as being from here. The other thing manufacturing did for us was when you run factories, you're always looking at efficiency of operation. And you think about a venue, Josh owns a venue, we own a venue, Casey just populates venues. Uh, <laughs> but when you think about a venue, a venue on game day is like a manufacturing operation. Yet I still don't think back in the mid 90s, people were viewing them that way. And so we quickly brought uh, the skills we had gotten from manufacturing to the sports world, and I think it definitely helped us. And when we built Gillette, having built lots of factories and knowing what you have to think through, that helped us too. Well, as someone who sat on those aluminum seats, I thank you for that. <laughs> someone who was going to those games in the 70s and ducking the beer cans that were being thrown our way. It really has You might have been one of two or three women that was actually in the stadium, so thank I think, you. And I think, no, no kidding, I think I might have been sitting in the Rand Whitney seats That's too. true. So there you go. Casey, you have such a unique perspective for all of this, but to use Jonathan's words, you are populating some of these venues. But how, you're, you've, you're, you grew up in the LA community, your father was involved. How did all of that experience translate from actual business into sports ventures for you? Um, look, I, I grew up in, a, in an entertainment family. Um, um, I also, grew up with uh, uh, and raised by a family that was very clear that I should do what I wanted to do, not what they did. Uh, and for some weird reason, um, not just sports, but the business of sports was a passion early on. And for me, you know, what, what growing up with some means means is you have the freedom to choose. It also means if you make bad choices, bad things happen. Um, but that freedom to choose is actually the greatest luxury in life. And so the, the, the freedom to choose my passion and pursue that passion, um, unlike 
uh, uh, Josh and Jonathan, um, my day job and my volunteer job, if you will, are, are both in the business of sports. Right. Um, but I do that because it's what I really love to do every day. And so I started my business uh, and built that over the last 20 years. Uh, and then for the last three or four years, I've had this volunteer job with uh, the Olympics and, and the Olympic right. movement. And, um, you know, being able to do both those things in the city I love and to have that city be going through sort of the, the incredible growth and sort of rebirth that it's gone on in the last few years and will probably for the next couple of decades is, is a really remarkable opportunity. So Jonathan mentioned in the 90s how things were very different. In your view, how has marketing and representation changed here over the last, I mean, pretty dramatically, correct? It, it has. Look, on the representation side, is, um, 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 the ability for athletes to engage directly with their fans um, obviously can be both good and bad, but is a remarkable sea change. And, and our view at our company is that uh, today's athletes in singular or aggregate are, uh, have the same fundamentals as a network. They provide reach and frequency and authenticity and connection. And we believe that there's a significant opportunity to monetize athletes in the same way that networks attract media dollars uh, mm -hmm. or other enterprises attract media dollars, that athletes ought to be able to attract those dollars and it's a big opportunity. You know, social media has sort of, we're in inning one of that today, but I think it's gonna accelerate pretty quickly. And on the brand side of the house, you know, the, the old days of sponsorship and media dollars and all those things living separately and bifurcation of roles and responsibilities in companies, Brands don't have that luxury anymore. There has never been more scrutiny around the allocation of non-working dollars, never more anxiety caused about the allocation of working dollars. And the truth is brands ought to have a marketing budget. And that marketing budget's purpose is to drive their business goals, whatever that may be. And they should be partnering and associating and spending against things that help them deliver that result, period, full stop. Not you know, buying this over here because of a relationship or a belief. It's, it's gotten much more holistic and much more comprehensive. And, uh, and I think it's really going to and, and just beginning to cause a major sea change in the way properties attract brand dollars. So self-empowering of athletes, it's a big topic, especially in the NBA. <clears throat> uh, so Josh, you have a very high profile, you have a couple of high pro, well, you, you almost have four now. You do. But, but let's start with Joel Embiid, who has nicknamed himself the process. You were in the thick of the entire, the process became its own commodity. And I wonder, <laughs> as a business person, how you had to approach that. and. And at times, I think it was probably hard for you to manage because the narrative ran away from you. Everybody had their own ideas of how that narrative was. Yeah, like the process was something that came grassroots. Right. Um, it was uh, a name that um, you know just came out of, from a lot of different places. But I think that look, I think that Joel uh, embodies you know the modern NBA superstar in terms of his both his uh, impact on the court, you know, and he's sort of got MVP type numbers now, but also, you know, how he handled, you know, his impact on social media with millions of followers and his ability to impact, um, use his brand to help uh, other, other brands. And so, uh, and he has a lot to say, he's got a great personality. And so um, I think that, um, you know, I think that embracing that and, and, asking and, and, and enabling your athletes to channel you know, their brands, which are huge today, and their ability to influence millions of people and, and trying to um, you know, get them to do it in a way that they're comfortable with, but that might also be constructive and positive is 
you know, really uh, part of the uh, what's happening in sports across the board, and particularly, you know, credit to the NBA and Adam for uh, orienting like uh, everyone in a positive way. And so, um, yeah, I think that it's uh, and Joel, you know, obviously, but we have we now have uh, four superstars, uh, and so we're. Uh, each of them in their own way have, um, you know, similar things going on. So it, 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 it definitely as, as, a, as, as management, as, a, as a, you know, the, a, the managing partner, you know, it gets complicated. Uh, well, but it's that because there are times Joel says things that I would think if I were Josh Harris, I might not love. Yeah, look, I think um, players are, they have their in, own, in, like, like all of us here, uh, and we all live in the United States. We're allowed to express our opinion, and um, you know, players have their own opinions, and so uh, you know, you can certainly give advice, but they're entitled to express their opinions and uh, in the way that they want. But you know, certainly, um, you know, um, you you do the best you can to make sure it's positive and constructive, and it generally is, and it's mm -hmm. been in our part, it's been very positive. So, uh, but it can, there's no question it can be complicated, and uh, it has to be handled deftly and. Uh, in a way that, um, you know, in a way that they feel good and comfortable about. Modern NBA superstar, let's face it, they're... They're running the show. Yeah, they have, they have a lot of sway and a lot of power. Like, it's a player's league. Yep. Uh, and um, you have to be all about, uh, you know, to be successful in sports in general, but particularly in the NBA, you have to be, you have to create a place that players want to play, that superstars want to play, that they feel comfortable with, and that, they feel like they've got, you know, access to the best healthcare, the best food, the best medical care, and the best platform, mm -hmm. and also just make it an enjoyable experience where they feel the ability, that, where they're allowed to creatively express themselves. And so, you know, a lot of what we do today is trying to attract those players to our franchise and make them feel really great about, you know, being part of uh, the Philadelphia 76ers or. Uh, the New Jersey Devils, but um, you know we're talking a lot about the Sixers right now, and, right. and that's that's my job. Mm -hmm. But I guess so. I guess at, you talk about access access to ownership. That seems to be also something that has to happen today. You, I mean, I've talked to Joel, and you said, well, I've talked to ownership about that. What does that mean exactly? It, it's look, it's a, it, <laughs> you know making um, a franchise successful is. There's a there's a lot of people involved in it, mm -hmm. and certainly ownership is got to be front and center. I mean, um, the players understand, you know, ultimately who controls the club, who calls ultimately the shots. But it's all it's not just about ownership. It's we have a, an incredible team, you know, starting with Elton Brand and Scott O'Neill is in the audience, and um, and so it's really about you know all of us, you know, and and you know being there and facilitating you know all of these things and you know all being oriented in the in the same way the coach Brett Brown has been you know our coach for six years now um, so all of this stuff matters and but ultimately as ownership you can't just let someone else do it right it doesn't really work anymore right so Jonathan By the way, you're signing I mean and then I let obviously don't want to take up too much air down here but these are also really I mean the amount you're you know the compensation system and the you know, they, these are really important investments to the city and to the franchise, and so um, you have to make sure that you know you're you're there, uh, making sure that it's working. Right. So, Jonathan, what I was going to say is maybe Antonio Brown, notwithstanding, in general, we haven't seen a lot of attempts at player empowerment in the NFL, and I think that's in part because the, the, the contracts aren't, aren't guaranteed. 
Now, you've had the same quarterback who's won six rings for you, who's very close to your organization, to you, to your family. So how much say does Tom Brady have? Are you having conversations with Tom Brady about what's going on with your team? I think, I think football is, is <clears throat> because of the nature of 53 men on the roster and right. on a practice squad. Yep. You've got 63 people in a locker room as opposed to 14 or 15. And yeah. of those 14 or 15, without being disrespectful, maybe four or five don't really even matter. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, in the one, I, I, you know what I mean. No comment. On a, on a, on a, <laughs> and Casey might, no, Casey only represents superstars. So, <laughs> but on, on, on a football team, you've got 63 men in a locker room, you've got 25 coaches. And for the most part, I think everybody in that locker room understands that the success of the team is based on our ability to function as a team. It, it's the, you know, do your job, but it really is that. In basketball, your job is pretty much overlaps with everybody else's job. Maybe there are some unique cases where that's not true. So I think just that dynamic of the locker room and, and how that works, and once you're in season, the time and the energy that, that has to go in and be channeled to winning, I just think creates a different dynamic. I'm, I know people in the media like to say it's about the guaranteed salaries, but, and, and that might be part of it, but I think superstars are gonna get signed, you know, and we're really talking about superstars developing. So their, I understand your premise, but yeah. I'm gonna push back a yeah, little bit ahead. because of all those 63 players, there's only one player that's been there for all oh, six. So Brady, look, Tom, yeah. but here's the deal about Tom Brady. Tom Brady appreciates more than any player I've ever seen, and maybe because he's played so many games, but mm -hmm. he loves the sport, which is what drives him. And I think Tom Brady understands that football isn't basketball, isn't baseball, isn't hockey, and that for a football team to have consistent success, no matter how great he is, and he is the greatest, I think he's the greatest competitor that we've ever seen in this country in any sport, that if you try to put yourself above the team or try to have an unequal say, the odds of the team being successful probably get diminished. And, and, and that doesn't mean if he has an opinion, he won't air it, but I think he understands that concept and, and appreciates and respects it. But, but, but part of your job as a, um, an owner or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, it, or as a GM is to try to help. I mean, a lot of times, I mean, Tom is an older, you know, he's in his 40s now. Mm -hmm. But many of the players, right, uh, in, in the NBA, right, are superstars when they're much younger. 19, so, sure. 18. Yeah, and part of it is obviously trying to, you know, they've, come, they, they've been the best at every level. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're, when you're in high school or college, <laughs> you don't need a surrounding cast as much around you to be the best. Um, but all of you know, our players want to want deeply to win, mm -hmm. and so educate like trying to figure out how to get them all to work together in a way that's constructive for all of them, and educating them on some of the things that Jonathan is talking about, mm -hmm. you know, across the board, you know, whether it be um, you know any of the people I've mentioned or myself or you know Michael Rubin, a co-owner that's in the audience, uh, a co-partner, um, you know, it's it's our job to do that and to work really hard on it. Right. So Casey, you're representing a, a lot of these athletes and it, the vibe I get, at least in the NBA, is that 
now, it, and it's, I think it hurts the smaller market teams in a way, is that if you're in a smaller market team and, and you're, maybe your team isn't winning a ton of games or you're not getting not endorsements, maybe you're not going to get picked for the all-star team. And if you're not get picked for the all-star team, you're not going to get endorsements. <clears throat> and it becomes this sort of, so when you're dealing with players, how do you say to them, here's how we can market you. You, know, you don't have to play for the Lakers, just for the Lakers or the Golden State Warriors or the Sixers or whatever. Um, yeah, I actually think the, the market size driving endorsement is a complete fallacy. Um, and I really look at marketing amongst athletes in two buckets. There's endemic brands and non-endemic right. brands. Right. Endemic brands want talent. That talent can live in any city. Take Russell Westbrook mm -hmm. as a good example as any. Um, in Oklahoma City, resigned in Oklahoma City, has the largest contract in the history of brand Jordan. Mm -hmm. He's the first athlete to have his own shoe inside brand Jordan and he's in Oklahoma City. It may not be the smallest NBA market, but it's certainly in the bottom five, I would imagine. Um, and he has unlimited opportunities for marketability. That's because of the kind of person he is and the kind of basketball player he is and the combination of those two. That is not restricted by the city he lives in or operates in because of the world we live in doesn't sort of artificially bound right. him to, to Oklahoma City. Um, and non-endemic advertising, you know, this will, is, is, a, is not as, for the most part, not as lucrative as an opportunity for most athletes as they think, um, because there are so many athletes to choose from. There's relatively little pricing power, and at the top of the game, those athletes get the, the majority of those opportunities, and, and below that, they seem to be viewed by brands on a pretty equal mm -hmm. playing field. Uh, and so I, I think it, the, what I love about the business of sports is that their opportunities and reputations are earned every day. Um, mm -hmm. And Russell is valuable because of, of his talent, um, and if his talent weren't to be at the level, he probably wouldn't be getting compensated off the court at the level he's getting compensated and probably not even on the court at the level right. he's compensated. And so I think, I think it is overblown. Um, maybe it's harder when you're a, a, a young player to break through, but you know, those things happen. And, and the NBA is particularly has done an incredible job of letting its athletes have personality and opportunity. Mm -hmm. It is by far the most proactive league in terms of uh, distribution of its content in every form and every, every medium. And that just creates more and more opportunity for its players. Um, if you think about the players whose shoes are selling, you know, you've got uh, Ante DeCumpo coming with a shoe in Milwaukee. You've got Damian Lillard as a big star in Portland. Portland. I mean, these are not, you know, uh, the Clippers, by the way, uh, are a playoff team right now, and I'm not sure anybody could name a player on the Clippers today. <clears throat> really. Uh, so it's, it's not about the market size, and, and the NBA has really leveled that playing field. Obviously, the NFL, in terms of its reach, is... Landry Shemette. Hmm? Right. What? Shea Gilgis-Alexander. We can play this game if you want. <laughs> yeah. We represent Shea, so he's, right. I'm happy you mentioned him, Jackie. Um, he's a great young player. I like him a lot. Yep. So I, I just, I'm not sure I buy that argument. It's, there's, there's. Well, I mean, I don't buy it either, but I've, but I don't have clients that I have to explain it to, right? Uh, That's I, your biggest challenge, I would think. It, explain it, it can to be. Clients. Obviously, look, in, in life, disappointment's a function of expectations. So expectations get out of whack and it's hard to manage that. But having said that, you know, our job is to be honest and transparent with the clients. And that always starts with um, how you earn yourself and your keep. I mean, a good example, we represent Andrew Luck. He only, when he came out of Stanford, he said, Casey, one deal. I'll do a shoe deal. I will only do it with Nike. If not, I'll play for free. And I want to earn the rest of my marketing dollars after I earn my success on the field, not until then. Hmm. But he's got to be the exception, not the rule. He's definitely the exception, but you see the benefits of that. He is sure. earning as much probably as any NFL player right now. And he's in a 
I don't know if it's Indies the smallest market, but pretty close to the smallest market in the one league. One of the smaller markets. Yeah. And who hasn't really, who's had recent success, but had a lot of down years. So each of the three of you, you've, um, you've used technology, and we're at an analytics conference, and analytics great, greatly to your advantage. So Jonathan, just in terms of your organization, what have been some of the biggest game changers in terms of whether it's player evaluation or fan experience? Um, from a from a player evaluation standpoint, I, when we came into the league, um, there were a couple of national scouting services that every team uh, subscribed to because it was hard, you know, the, being able to actually get tape or film. This is 25 years ago on everybody. And so everybody was getting these same reports on the same players. You had your own scouts who would go out and look at things, but it made no sense to us how the most competitive part of this business you're, Shared. you're yeah. sharing. Someone it. was making a lot of money, right? Yeah, somebody was making a lot of money. And so we, we, we started working on early iterations of a proprietary database, but today, just flash forward to today, our, our head coach, who's also effectively our general manager, and then Nick Cazario, who's our vice president of player personnel, the, the, the two of them, they can decide who gets access, but off of any mobile device, we, you, you can access um, information about any player on our roster or anybody that we're scouting, be it as a pro free agent or a college player, analyzed in our system's dynamics and then tracked once they become a pro, even if they're not with us, where they are. And mm. what that lets us start to do is to see how good our, our internal scouting metrics were early on, start to track, see which scouts are good or where scouts have strengths or weaknesses. Mm -hmm. So we know maybe scout X, you know, on receivers, he nails it, but on line D linemen, he doesn't. So you, huh, you know how to do it. And, and, and then you also start to learn things about the players as well and data that used to get tracked and just be on a sheet. And, you know, I remember Bill Parcells saying, you know, I like fat D linemen. So, like, to him, if a D lineman weighed 335 and another guy was 295, he'd just always go with the fat guy. And, and you know, that, Boy, that's, that's nice. That's your gut. Donut eaters rejoicing I'm, everywhere. I'm sort of... <laughs> paraphrasing but I'm not far <laughs> off and and so for us now we've taken it from that old school football guy saying yeah you got to have hands that are at least you know however many inches in diameter we, we've sort of refined the science around that and then even if the players aren't with us as we track them at other teams and how they're performing relative to the way we thought they'd perform and what their metrics were it lets you hone your own analytics but the key to that now is technology and anybody in our personnel department if they have the right access can literally go to any connected device and there's a lot more we're doing with it with sleep nutrition fitness for sure. the guys who are in on our wearables side. and stuff like wearables that. Yep. and and then i think on the on the on the fan or the consumer side I think the best part of it, it's technology, but it's not really, we use analytics to create content and see what people like, but the best thing that's happened over the last 25 years is the ability for teams as well as athletes, as Casey has talked about, to connect directly over so many different platforms 
And we've been obsessed with really curating platform by platform very differently. And, and the way we curate what goes on which platform and, and how we, maybe it's even the same type of story, but how we present it has, has very much been dictated by analytics. And I think for like really forever, we've been the most engaged team in the NFL. We, our engagement metrics are higher than anybody else's. And I, I turn that over to analytics. And that tells me that our, our fans who are consuming our content are getting the right stuff. Because we don't post, we're not the most uh, prolific posters, but when we post, post, it's thought out, usually with a lot of analysis behind it, and the engagement numbers would lead you to believe that's made a difference and our fans like it. Yes, yeah, so there's an explosion of technology across the board hitting mm -hmm. sports. So, I mean, start with the fact that <clears throat> the delivery of media, right? It, at this point, you know, we went over to Shanghai with the team, and we took the Sixers over to Shanghai. And, mm -hmm. Um, Am on the bund. Yeah. And, and whatever, there are more people in, in many cases watching our games in, in China than there are in the U.S. Mm -hmm. right now. So the ability to distribute sports content all over the world real time or delayed, but mostly real time, is what's driving, you know, kind of the sports valuations and media dollars. And then you get into um, just the explosion of social media. Um, you know, sports has become part of the American, you know, and the global experience. And so people are living on social media. I think we have, I think, six million followers, you know, across our social media platforms. Um, and then you go to e-gaming and, you know, there's now 450 million people watching e-gaming, right? And so... That's a big um, number. It so turns, number. Yeah, it turns out that obviously if you played basketball, if you played football, if you played baseball, you're much more likely to watch those sports. And guess what? There are... There are more nerds, just sorry about that. Um, there are more people that couldn't, that didn't participate in high level sports, but are, there's a billion people gaming right now. And so that, that's coming quickly, whether you'll make money on it, whether, whether it'll be a money making business as a sport is unclear, but you know, certainly there's, gonna, there's enormous fan engagement there. And then. So how are you, how are the Sixers keen into that then, e gaming? Yeah, so we were, we were uh, the first professional team to get into e-gaming. We have a platform called Dignitas. We're in five games. Uh, and um, we're also obviously in the NBA, uh, uh, Y2K League. And um, yeah, so we're, we're deeply involved in it. Um, we have also, uh, we have a, a sports tech venture fund that invests across the ecosystem. We have an incubator and we have you know, a company that trains, you get good. They literally train kids and to be athletes to be good at gaming. Wow. Uh, you know, much to, my, as a parent, much to my chagrin, because I'm trying to get my kids off, off their phones, not on their phones. But um, yeah, so all this stuff is kind of happening real time and it's, it's changing the ecosystem. And then, you know, as Jonathan's saying, on the, on the field, on the court, on the ice, like you're seeing an explosion in data analytics, and we're trying to be leaders there. Um, but it's everything from player selection and creating, you know, video databases on your own infrastructure that allow you to look across different leagues, high school, college, mm -hmm. um, to uh, you know, strategy, game in-game strategy, and getting the coaching staff to uh, sub substitute in a certain way or play certain schemes against other teams. And if you're not doing that. Look, winning is hard. Um, there are 30 teams or 32 teams, depending on, or 20 teams if you're talking about the Premier League. But right. like, you've got 
like really smart people trying to beat you. And so you're looking for every kind of edge you can get. And if you're not really focused on um, data analytics, on wellness, on sleep, on nutrition, you're, it's really not, it doesn't make sense. And by the way, the players, you know, are, understand this, right? So if you're a team that's not on the cutting edge of this stuff, they notice it. And, um, and then I think you'll, ultimately you'll lose. You're not gonna win. So I think like we're focused on all this stuff. Was there one thing that you wish you got in on earlier? We've all, like, since we, you know, I, I the, you know, Krauss obviously been owners for many, many years. I mean, the, this, we, you know, I got involved with the Sixers in 2011, and then the Devils in 2013, and um, Palace in 2016. And I think that since I've been involved, I've been very much focused on um, creating, you know, leading in a lot of this stuff, but we were, in some cases, it took a while to get it going, and so I'd say um, we've been very focused on it. It takes a long time to build, um, but there's nothing that, you know, you know creating edges, creating edges, uh, doing things differently, creating competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. um, that's, what we're, that's what we've done, you know, since, since at least our ownership group's gotten involved. And, but, you know, we were behind. I mean, a lot of the teams, like, you know, the, the Boston <laughs> teams, right, they were, they were leaders in these areas for a long time. And so... You know, I think, but I think we're doing a good job of, um, hopefully we're doing a good job of catching up. I know people here don't want to hear that, but uh, I think uh, hopefully we can, hopefully we can uh, win, win a few games against the Boston teams. Yes, I'm not gonna say anything about that. Yeah. Um, Casey, you have brought the Los Angeles, uh, the Olympics games to Los Angeles. No small feat. <laughs> I wonder if you can tell us how analytics played a role and you know you were telling me backstage between which year you should even try to take on the Olympics. Can you share some of that with us? Yeah, um, and just real quick at, at our company, we, we take a step back on analytics, which is our view is the world is drowning in data and what you're starving for is insights. And so if you think about what Jonathan has done with the, with the Patriots, everybody had the data. It's the insights that were particular to their team and their philosophy that made it valuable. Uh, so whether it's with our players or for our brands, we believe that the publicly available data, the data we have has given the context and the breadth of what we do, but it's the insights on top of it that actually make it valuable. Um, with the Olympics, I would say, um, you know, there were two sort of analytics. One, um, we were running an election, so vote counting is a pretty mm -hmm. ancient form of analytics. Uh, there were 96 members of the IOC, and our job was to get 50% plus one of them to vote for, uh, for, vote for LA. And on an unlevel playing field, right? Uh, I would be, I'll say uh, that, you that might be an understatement, Jackie. Um, um, and, and uh, you know, it was an interesting time to be bidding for the Olympics. It was an interesting time to be telling people that the United States of America was welcoming the world, um, right. especially what happened in November of 2016. Sure. Um, so just a really interesting context to be engaging with a, a highly, uh, by definition, every person was not an American uh, who could vote. Um, 44 of those people lived in Europe. So. Okay. Our competitors were all European cities. Um, right. And so we spent a lot of time trying to understand connectivity. And, and how, do, how do you go about that? How do you get that <laughs> intel? Uh, uh, you know, there's a cottage industry in the Olympic world of people who do that. Um, it's all about relationship building and connections. And frankly, it's why Mary Garcetti and I traveled around the world for two years chasing IOC members to try and get to know them and understand them. And more importantly, get them to know who we were and who we weren't uh, and what LA could do, what we thought for the Olympic movement. Um, you know, fr from a 24 and 28, um, very simply, we had a, you know, being in a position where you literally don't have to build a venue 
put you in a complete position of strength. Uh, because time as a factor when you're constructing things is a bad thing, and time as a factor when you're not constructing things, you have more money to generate revenue, and that's a luxury. Uh, now, we obviously didn't declare that right away. We were pretty coy, or we tried to be pretty coy in our interest in only being in 24. But in the end, um, we got a half a billion dollars in incremental revenue from the IOC, and we got four more years to sell. And, and we think that the combination of those two things is going to produce a, sort of a, a real new paradigm of economic Olympic uh, uh, opportunity. So what is the biggest challenge for you? I think, I, I'm, I'm speaking a little out of, out of my hat here, but I think was the, was the last Olympic, what's the last Olympic, I'll ask you, what was the last Olympics to turn a profit? Well, if you're doing Olympic speak, what you would say is there's two Olympic budgets always. There's an operating budget and a capital budget. Okay. On an operating basis, every Olympics uh, since 2000 has been profitable. And every Olympics, when you combine that with the capital budget, has been a loss maker. A loss maker, right. Um, obviously, LA84 becomes, had become the model uh, of profitability from Olympic Games, producing roughly a $200 million right. profit. Um, um, look, what's interesting for us is uh, we don't have to build a venue. So what we can think about is all the stuff that's about the experience of going to an Olympic Games. Okay. Um, and you were here talking about technology. Um, some points of reference. When we were bidding in 2016, so we were in Rio in the, in the throes of our competition, 10 years prior to that would have been the Olympic Games in turn Italy, and you wouldn't have had an iPhone in your pocket because it hadn't been invented yet. Right. So I'm sitting here today trying to understand where we're going to be nine and a half years, essentially 10 years from today, mm. when 10 years prior there wasn't an iPhone. And you're it's probably get... already behind, right? I mean, nine years, like, that's coming soon for you. Yeah, it's hard to get your head around that. Uh, you think about autonomous vehicles. Uh, I am no expert by any stretch of the imagination, but you ask anybody who is or, or pretends to be, and they say, well, maybe three years, maybe five years, maybe seven years, but for sure, in 10 years, there'll be pervasive autonomous vehicles. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I've never heard someone say that there will never be autonomous vehicles in 10 years. Well, one of the things you think about, one of the biggest obligations and, and challenges for Olympic Games is transportation. All right, infrastructure. We will sell 12 million tickets in 17 days. That's just fans. We will have... Uh, How will you do that? How will you sell 12 million? I mean, like I'm talking about the logistics of selling those well, tickets. Well, hopefully the logistics of selling tickets only continues to get better, but the logistics of an Olympic Games, you know, the Olympic Games, people don't quite understand, is the biggest operational and economic event on Earth. Uh, I always explain to people, we operate a World Cup as one of our 28 sports. Right. Just for some perspective. Um, and, and so it's, it's unprecedented in its scale. Um, 28 federations, uh, 12 million visitors, 17,500 athletes, 30,000 coaches and officials. Uh, we'll have probably 60,000 volunteers. Um, and there is no way to pressure test any of that. And hopefully technology will help us do a much more efficient and effective job of delivering that so that the experience of going to the games is radically transformed in a place where you don't have to build a venue. I'm picturing like the, Jebs, the Jetsons. <laughs> but, uh, all right, so we, let's talk about the future then. Uh, over the next, let's say, 10 years. We'll, we'll go along with that. Jonathan, what is the most exciting thing? What are you excited most about in sports and entertainment if you look ahead 10 years? Um, I guess the sexy thing would be to say how artificial intelligence is going to affect mm -hmm. the industry, but I think we're still a ways off from that. I think the most exciting thing, and it involves data and technology, I think, to a much greater degree than people understand, which is uh, betting, but not the betting of the Sixers minus 15 over the Celtics, but 
He likes those. Wow. He likes wow. he likes being favored by shade. Unfortunately, that's not realistic. That was some serious <laughs> shade there. Well, it's no, no, no. Words. I'm. I'm <laughs> It's hard for me when the Celtics and Sixers play each other because I love him, I love Michael, we've all known each other, but I am from Boston. Um, but I think in-game <clears throat> proposition betting, and not even the size of the bets, but the engagement that's going to come from in-game proposition uh, wagering is going to create all these different levels of entertainment, even if you don't want to do it for money or engagement. But I think the tech, I think what people haven't talked about, you know, you'll be watching on a phone or on a tablet or on your television, and you can opt into a stream of proposition bets, let's say. How are those bets being generated in real time? You think about the technology that's going to have to be on the fields, that's going to have to be bulletproof in the pace of a game. Right. And then the algorithms that in real time are going to have to generate the proposition, send them to you before the time's out, let you get a wager in, and then keep a tab. And whether you're betting against the house, betting against peer groups, betting with friends in a social, uh, betting against a peer or in a, some type of social group, I, I, I just think that's the most exciting thing. And I think from a, strictly from a football perspective, as we develop Tech, whether we develop the technology, I assume a media company will or technology companies will. I think people are really underestimating what it's going to take to do that. But like for us in football, I think when you can overlay that as we try to become easier for people in other countries to understand, I think that that's a, that'll be a real exciting, interesting opportunity. And that's probably the most exciting thing on the horizon. Are you, are you horizon. I assume you're... you're Working on this, yes. I'm. Uh, Come on now, no, nobody's I mean, listening. No, nobody's I even mean, look, listening. I've, I've, I've. Uh, look, the, I think leagues. No, it's not being. It's a yes. I'm it's a yes. To, I just know I'm it is. I'm thinking a lot about it. I, but to say I'm working on it is a different thing. Okay. I think a lot about it, but I'd probably be lying if I said I'm working on it. But I okay. certainly talk to lots of people about it, and I think. There's going to be something very special done in that. And then the data that comes out of that, and to Casey's point, you'll get huge insights from that. And I think it'll help make the games more entertaining, let you look at rule changes, do so hmm. much to take the... Because ultimately, this is entertainment. I mean, right. it's entertainment. And the more insight you get into what's entertaining for people, the better you can do meeting those needs, and ultimately that raises all ships. So I was you're, gonna, you're on this. Too. Yeah, I was going to broaden it. I mean, I think it, please. Yeah, <laughs> fanning. I think like the, between betting and gaming, uh, and two-way interaction with games and with other people watching games, uh, you know, the technology is going to facilitate uh, much more active fan engagement. Uh, and look, the big five sports, you know, the football, basketball, baseball, hockey, and soccer slash football, depending on what geography you live, you're from. Right. Like, uh, you know, the, those, we, we talked about e-gaming. I mean, those are the sports that are going to increasingly uh, matter globally. And so that's the other thing I would say, which is globalization. Right. Um, increasingly, people are going to be able to um, watch these sports all over the world, there'll be you know hundreds, if not billions, of people more watching these sports, and so and what you're competing with, I mean, to Jonathan's point, and probably the biggest risk, right, is you're now competing with Netflix, you're competing with Amazon, you're competing with 
other things that people do with their time. I mean, sports is definitely one at this point, uh, but there's a lot of people coming. There are people now increasingly, you know, you know, my kids, uh, you know, kids that are the millennials, um, Generation Z now are spending a lot more time doing other things. And so um, there's only 24 hours in a day. And, um, you know, so what sports needs to keep doing is to keep innovating uh, and keep using the technology to make sure that people are really enjoying the experience, the fan experience of watching these big sports. And I think increasingly these will be the sports that matter. Um, and, you know, plus a couple things like the Olympics and other big events. Sure. Let me ask you a question, though. So both of you are talking about in-game and whether you do it on your tablet or at home. So do you worry that fans will stop coming to the games? I think you have to keep making that experience. You have to keep improving that experience. I mean, there's no question that, um, I, but I don't think it's necessarily an either or. I mean, I think certainly, um, you know, every time you build a new arena, um, and every time, you know, new arenas today, right, are much closer to the action than arenas were before. Uh, in some cases, they are smaller. In the case of our sports, uh, you know, we, you know, we're, we're able to fill our arenas. Um, but I think certainly there are other sports, I mean, where uh, they're struggling a little bit more, the pace of the game. People don't want to, you know, spend hours and hours at a game. So I think there's no question that the, the not only do we have to, like, the, the big... The, the big thing for sports is ultimately outside the arena, but you also need part of watching um, a, a sport, right, is seeing the fan engagement at the arena. And so you can't leave that behind, even though that's, that's the smaller number of people. And it's very, very important. You look at, like, I go to a Premier League game, you know, I go to a Palace game, like the fan, you know, the fans singing and going crazy and the wildness of the right. fans. Um, you know, that, that matters, you know, to the uh, person viewing it on their tablet or on their phone or sure whatever. That's important. So I think um, you need both. Um, and certainly you're right. I think that's going to be a challenge that we, keep have, we all have to keep working on. Hockey games, nothing like a really close hockey game. Those fans, it's the same 18,230 fans usually, but yeah. they're amazing. They're tribal. They are. They are. They're tribal. I'm going to actually take some questions, if you guys are good with that. Let's see if I can do this, JB. You can always rescue me if I can't. Usually when I open this up, there's nothing there. Technology. I know. Here we go. Ah, here we go. <laughs> okay. Oh, so here's a, an interesting question for Jonathan. How do you prepare to lead a successful organization that has created an unrealistic expectation of what success is? That's a pretty That's good a question. really good question. That is a good question. And if someone asks me what keeps me awake at night uh, as relates to our sports businesses, that would be the question. Because, but you know what? That's, if you're going to have a problem, it's a, if we are, as described, it's a good problem to have. I think what makes it harder in the NFL versus maybe the NBA is you can't really sell the athletes. Free agency is a part of it, but it's building a team. And that's why the, the personnel tools I was talking about are so important to us. And, and, and what keeps us awake at night is just is how we are going to stay at a consistently, at least at a consistently above average level, if not competing for championships, when, when the coach and the quarterback, who are such important elements of the group that puts a football team together, 
are no longer with us. And you just, you want that culture so strong and all the other players and coaches who are there and you want all the supporting tools to be as strong as possible and to have whatever competitive advantage we might have had built into it so you can build off of that. But that, that would be, it's, it's not a perfect answer and it really does keep us awake at night. And my guess is uh, we'll have a stretch that we won't be happy with, but we're gonna do our best not to be in that position. So I'm gonna tell you backstage I was speaking, I don't know if he's here, uh, with Kirk Lakeup, who's part of the front office of the Golden State Warriors. And the question I asked him, we were talking about, he, he was saying that when you win over and over, is it joy or relief? Joy or relief? I, I, it's not relief. I, but, you know, if you win the last game of the season, it's pure and utter joy. And 31 other teams in the NFL, you might have done a lot better than last year so you feel good but when you lose it sucks I mean everybody knows that so one team really feels joy I think as mm -hmm. the season is playing out it's not it le I, I don't have that many highs and lows mm -hmm. you know week to week with with wins and losses from my perspective but maybe you know that's a byproduct of what we've been lucky enough to experience I grew up as you talked about I, I saw uh, from 1971 to 94, as I was a Patriot fan, I saw one home playoff game that we got destroyed in, right. um, in that whole period of time. And, 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 and so clearly that, that is, I, I can juxtapose it back to that old days and understand, I love the experience of being in a live game. But I think people who've been with us the last 25 years probably do have a high expectation and we're going to have to try to meet it. I think there's plenty of teams that would love to have your problems, Jonathan. <laughs> uh, Casey, if you look at the sports world and assuming L.A. is profitable in 2028, like in 84, how does this directly benefit the citizens of Los Angeles? So um, a couple things. Uh, um, as part of taking the Olympics in 2028, um, we, the organizing committee, agreed as a, as a guaranteed budget expenditure to fund $160 million to subsidize youth sports access okay. for low-income kids in Los Angeles. So um, youth sports programs offered through the Rexham Park, which is a city agency, starting in September of this year, um, for low-income families will be 100% free for the next 10 years. Oh, that's, and we, that's the organizing committee, are paying for that. And that we hope that that doubles enrollment and if we do our job right, um, the next Russell Westbrook, the next Serena Williams, both direct, not indirect, direct byproducts of the Olympics in 84, will be marching and opening ceremonies in 2028 from that thing. But I always have believed that if we do 2028, if we do our job, we will deliver the games, they will be great, and we'll break even, because in you know, mm -hmm. Olympic uh, economics, that's like nirvana. Right. And I, will, I say to our staff, if we do that, we will have failed, um, because our opportunity is so much bigger than that. And when I think about the impact on the city, uh, it's really twofold. One, uh, we will always be careful that we as an organizing committee, because we're not a city agency, we can't be responsible for every problem that exists in Los Angeles. Right. But what we can be is an incredible motivation for the residents of Los Angeles to make our city better. You know, how do we um, change the paradigm of homelessness by the time the Olympics come? It's not our responsibility, but can we be a motivating factor? How do we make LA the healthiest city in the world by 2028? How do we 
change what our environmental sustainability looks like by 2028? How do we change you know, traffic and car use by 2028? Those are, those are lines and, and flags in the ground that we can plant that, that the 2028 games can be a motivation uh, for. The second piece is, if we achieve what I think is possible economically, okay, get your head around um, um, a big 10-figure profit from an Olympic Games, and imagine what that could do to a city forever. Mm -hmm. Not inconceivable, uh, and, and not unrealistic, not easy, <laughs> not our, not our short-term goal. Long way uh, our job is to secure these games and make them um, sustainable economically, but we get lucky, we have some success, we maybe do some things that have never been done in the Olympics before. We have the opportunity to change our city forever in a way that people can't quite get their head around today. That's pretty cool. All right, this is going to be our last question for Josh. With basketball being a player's league, <laughs> how does a team position itself as a brand without focusing on players that may not even be around in two years? Um, look, I think that um, the Sixers have a culture and a history of, of greatness. And I think that, you know, starting with Wilt Chamberlain and um, going through, you know, Moses Malone and Dr. J and Maurice Cheeks and Andrew Tony. And you know all of our, you know Charles Barkley and Chuck, yeah, Chuck, and one of your colleagues. So, um, yeah, so I think I think we have to we I think we have to stand for excellence and um, and and we have to win. And so um, and then we have to stand for um, and in order to do that, we're going to have to stand for being a great player, place for players to come, and and, and a great place for fans to experience the game. And so I think we were lucky uh, that the people before us, that the history of the club was so great, but mm -hmm. it's an awesome responsibility. I feel a lot of, a big sense of responsibility to keep it going. And, uh, and the next step uh, in our process, right? Right. Win some playoff series. There you go. And that's right. what we got to do. But I mean, when you have superstars, so you have, you have Joel, you have, you have Jimmy Butler, you have Ben Simmons, you have Tobias Harris. That's going to cost a lot of money to keep all those. Players. Yes, it is. <laughs> are we up for this? Josh? We are. We are. Like we, we wouldn't have. Uh, you know, if you look at the trades that we made this year um, for Tobias and Jimmy, um, you know, we um, wouldn't have done those trades if we didn't expect, um, you know, those players. And if we weren't going to strive really hard to have those players and. Uh, ben and Joel around, and when you add up, do all the math. Unfortunately, it's pretty high. It's expensive, right? Uh, so, look, you win in the NBA, as, uh, as Jonathan said, maybe different than hockey, and different than football, and different than even the Premier League. Um, so you win with you win with two superstars, uh, and you know they're expensive. Max contracts are what they are. Mm -hmm. um, players can get those, and so it's about. Um, you know, you, you know, spending correlates with winning, and it, you can't just spend to win, but you got to do it. And so sure. we're we're up for it. It's part of you know, you know, I'm, you know, I, I want to deliver, I want to deliver. You know, I'm sitting next to you know Jonathan Kraft six Super Bowls, but I really do want to deliver a championship to the city of Philly. It's really important to me. Very good. Thank you. If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics.
Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.